Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Transparency with Diana B, a podcast by WealthManagement.com. My name is Diana Britton, and I'm the managing editor of WealthManagement.com. For those of you who are new, new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors. Guests join me to talk about their own experiences dealing with the struggle and how they overcame that. My guest today is Kashif Ahmed, Cash for short the founder and president of American Private Wealth, an advisory firm outside of Boston. And he's also been a professor of finance. He's taught economics, wealth management at Suffolk University in Boston. Although he was born in Pakistan, he spent his formative years in the multicultural environment of Kuwait before escaping the brutal Iraqi occupation there. He's traveled to dozens of countries in his life. Cash, thank you so much for being on the show today. It is my pleasure. So, I mean, we're sort of in the midst of chaos right now, all of us with the coronavirus, a lot of us working from home. So, you know, I'm in the same boat. Uh, My kids are at home. You might hear them screaming or playing in the background. Um, But Cash, I know you went through some chaos yourself in your early life. And most of us remember the days of Saddam Hussein who led Iraq with an iron fist for several decades and the Gulf War in particular in the early 90s. That war was prompted by Iraq's invasion and annexation of Kuwait over oil pricing and production disputes. The Iraqi forces eventually set 600 Kuwaiti oil wells on fire. And in in 1990, at the age of 17, Cash and his family found themselves at the center of that conflict They were living in Kuwait at the time, and his father was instrumental in building the country's oil industry. So, Cash, I mean, tell me about your childhood. Start with, you know, what was life like growing up in Kuwait before the invasion? You know, your dad's role, uh, his ties to the royal family. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Kuwait um, was a very rich country, a very small country, and I happened to grow up during the petro boom of the 1970s and the 1980s. Uh, my father, God bless him, uh, went to what was then Arabia in 1957. Uh, Kuwait became an independent country from Britain in 1961. Uh, when we were growing up, we were so blessed to grow up in a country that was incredibly generous to everybody who lived there, Kuwaiti citizens and others. We were even more blessed because my father, you know, had been become very accomplished by that point. Uh, we went to private schools. I have a British uh, education up, up until high school, and um, we just had a very, very good life. Everything was good. The world itself, in general, was a safe place, and um, our lifestyle was, <clears throat> you know, very comfortable and lavish. But, you know, my father always made sure that we were also grounded and not spoiled. Yeah. And so when Iraq invaded, I think it was the summer 
uh, August summertime. 2nd. Yeah, August yeah. 2nd, 1990. So your life literally turned upside down. And what happened on that day? How did you feel? So I had graduated from high school and I was on the verge of starting medical school because under the British system, you go to your professional studies right after high school. Mm-hmm. And I had graduated with high honors, uh, with a GPA that was above 4.0. And, uh, you know, I was partying. I came in the night before, uh, kind of late after hanging around with my mates and woke up the next morning with my father really talking quite loudly. He was on the phone with other people. So I came out of my bedroom and I kind of joked with him and I said, um, hey, I'm trying to sleep here. What's up with all the noise? He goes, oh, you go ahead and sleep. The country's under occupation. Mm. And I said, uh, come again. And he goes, we have been invaded and we're under occupation by Iraq. And I'm like, what are we talking about? I mean, I watch a lot of movies. That's the first time I've heard that outside of a Hollywood movie. And lo and behold, you know, we started to see Iraqi forces congregate uh, in the town that we lived in was a little bit south of the capital. Kuwait itself is not very big. You can go north to south in a few hours. And it's, it almost sound, you know, looked like it was out of a movie. I, I mean, Kuwait was such a safe place. We hardly ever saw cops. And if we ever saw them, I mean, we never really saw crime. There were certainly no guns. And then all of a sudden to see soldiers and tanks rolling in and they're setting up bunkers uh, and positions on the beach. We lived uh, on the beach and it was just, it was uh, (laughs) unreal. Yeah, it was very unreal. And then, uh, you know, I remember my mother was making breakfast and my father basically just started to say, we need to leave now. And he had gotten a call um, that the Iraqi invading army was destroying um, properties that belonged to the royal family and where we lived, you know, the, the property belonged to the royal family. And so my father had gotten that call and he said, we need to run. And my mother said, well, let's have uh, breakfast. I'm literally frying an egg. And he goes, no, now. Mm. And that's it. We left. I, I mean, I was wearing shorts and a T-shirt and a flip-flop. And that's how we fled. Mm. Never, never to come back to our home. Wow. <clears throat> I mean, you know, you see a lot of uh, press coverage of these types of situations and wars on CNN and other networks and, you know, but you were really experiencing it on the, on the front line. I mean, you were, you were escaping it. So tell us, you know, what happened? I know you were on the run for six weeks. What happened during those six weeks? So we initially went into hiding Um, the family. We had extended family who lived in Kuwait. So we all congregated in one place. It was my uncle's house to kind of figure out, you know, what to do and what's going on. And because, I mean, in a span of a few hours, there was no more country. There were no more supermarkets. Everything was closed. Uh, And then lawlessness started. Uh, When people got desperate, they needed food. I mean, they started basically breaking into supermarkets. So those first few weeks, we were just trying to figure out how are we going to get out and in which direction. Mm -hmm. So at one point, you know, we did make an attempt um, as a family. There was a convoy of us trying to head south to Saudi Arabia. And uh, eventually we had to turn around because we were stopped by Iraqi forces uh, that basically not only stopped us, but they uh, 
menacingly positioned a helicopter in front of our convoy of seven cars. Hmm. And and they said, you must turn around. And and we said, no, we're just going to Saudi Arabia. And they're like, no, you're not allowed to go to Saudi Arabia. Go back to work. And, and my father said, what work? And, uh, but he was also smart enough not to challenge them. And so we just turned around and we spent basically in hiding, trying to figure out, listening to the BBC, uh, turning off the lights at, at night. So, you know, if there was a patrol outside, they wouldn't think there was anybody here. Um, and then every now and then we'd venture out to go look for some food, uh, whatever supplies, let's say the local bakeries had, they would make some bread and we would try to go out and get that. Yeah. And you said one time you, you were stopped by Iraqi forces and they handed you, um, you know, a, a list of people to take hostage, right? Yeah. So it was my, my father, uh, myself, my uncle and my cousin, we were out basically just trying to find what's happening. If we could find some food and an Iraqi patrol pulled up next to us and, um, the, uh, the officer gestured to, to us to come near him. We went over, he had a clipboard and, um, he said, uh, you know, any of these people. And he turned it towards my father. And on the top, it said, basically the, the title of the page was people to be brought in as hostages. And the number one person listed on there was my father. Mm, gosh. And, and so, you know, my father basically said to him, you know, I know a bunch of these people, look, I'll help you out. Why don't you come here at exactly the same time tomorrow? And I'll bring some of them to you. And uh, I mean, I was obviously it was very, very risky. He could have said, well, why don't you take me to them now? Right. But he kind of patted my father on the shoulder. and He goes, you're a good man. I'll see you here tomorrow. And that's really basically was a huge wake up call for us. And, uh, you know, my father got to work trying to change our identities and so forth. Yeah. And so um, what were some of the things that happened to you when you were sort of looking for food? I know, um, you know, you want one time you want try to get water for your family. Um, yeah. So, so the couple of things, uh, while we were still in um, Kuwait, um, we were out looking for food and another patrol pulled up and um, they basically just said, Oh, you guys over there, you have been uh, caught stealing and the penalty is death. And we were like, come again. Um, what had happened is a lot of looting started to happen in Kuwait. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of the Iraqi citizens themselves were not doing the looting. A lot of them hadn't even come south to check out this new province of Iraq. And I believe the Iraqi government said it should be really our people looting this stuff. And uh, so in order to kind of um, stop it, they uh, came back with an order saying that uh, if you're caught stealing, the penalty is death. And uh, mm -hmm. so, so we were handed this penalty um, while we were still in kind of like, hey, what's going on here? They brought out a crane just to kind of, you know, show that they were serious. They put a rope on it, built a little noose. People that were out and about started to congregate to see what was happening. And uh, I was the first one to be hanged. But but the water story is many weeks later in in a city called Basra. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll go back to the the hanging, I guess, because <laughs> obviously you know you're still here. Um, what happened? How did you get out of that? So basically, this Iraqi officer came to me, put the noose around my neck, and said, um, "Here, I'm going to give you a chance to live. Why don't you take this bullhorn that he had in his hand and shout?" 
long live Saddam so that everybody can hear you. And uh, I use some colorful language and I basically told him, told him no. Uh, then he asked me a second time and my father, you know, when I did it the first time, uh, he basically scolded me for using foul language. Uh, you know, still a gentleman to the very end. And um, then I did it the second time and he scolded me again for using foul language. And uh, my uncle basically turned to me and he said, don't be a fool. Uh, tell him what he wants to hear so we can all get out of here. Mm. The Iraqi officer asked me a third time, this time in English. And he, and he said, uh, say it. And I, I gave him the same exact answer. And he promptly took out his uh, pistol and shot me in the foot. Mm, gosh. Point blank. Mm. And uh, basically when I, when I came to, uh, obviously I passed out because of shock. Um, but when I came to, he was still there. I was on the ground and uh, he bent down to basically ask me, you know, he said, why did you make me do this to you? And I said to him, look, I, I just don't say things I don't believe in. So why don't you go such and such yourself? And believe it or not, he bent down, uh, grabbed my cheeks, planted a huge wet kiss on one side. And he goes, you're the craziest such and such I ever met. Now get out of here. <laughs> and, and, you know, many, um, many months later, while we were safe back in Pakistan, my father said to me, he goes, I still don't condone you, the use of foul language, but I am so proud of you. You stood on principle. Mm. And you basically saved your family. Yeah. Right? I mean, I could have basically acceded to his demands, but I've, I've just always believed that if you, if you don't have principles, you have nothing. Yeah. And I will, I will stand on them, you know, whatever the consequences. Yeah. And so, I mean, a lot of just horrific things happened to you. I know that you were attacked uh, when you tried to get water. You were almost raped by some women that were sexually frustrated. Tell us about some of those things or how did, how did these traumatic experiences make you feel? I mean, you're, you're really strong and brave for, you know, enduring all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, people always ask me, you know, about this time. And I always say, I'm so grateful all of that happened. Uh, I mean, you have to understand, we grew up very sheltered, um, very privileged. Uh, and then within a couple of hours with your life getting turned upside down and becoming a refugee, you know, richest a refugee. Yeah. I am um, so grateful. I mean, if it were to happen all over again, I'd be, I'd embrace it because, you know, everything that happens to you, is meant to happen. And it's, I think, just adds to you who you become. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for what I have. Uh, I'm also, you know, always expecting not to have it also, uh, because I've, you know, I've lost it twice. And um, I'm, I'm just very grateful that those things happen. It, it makes you stronger. It, uh, it allows you to see the other side also. I mean, somebody... Yeah. Right. who was doing something to me, uh, I'm not just going to be angry that they did it to me. I'm going to try to figure out, well, why did they do that to me? What mm -hmm. happened in their life for them to resort to that? Hmm. So you, you eventually, after six weeks of being on the run and traveling through several countries, you got to Pakistan. Yeah, um, so, so our journey took us uh, north to Basra, which is right across the border. 
-hmm. uh, and we thought we might cross over into Iran and Iran borders Pakistan, which is the country of my heritage. Uh, mm -hmm. Although prior to that, I'd never lived there. Uh, but the Iraqi government uh, wouldn't let us cross because the Pakistani government had condemned the invasion of the United Nations. And so they basically were taking revenge on Pakistani citizens and saying, everybody else can cross, but not you guys. And so we spent three days there. Eventually, we were basically forced to run. They started firing on us. Oh, gosh. We went to uh, Baghdad, spent about three days basically sleeping on sidewalks. Couldn't really get any help from any of the uh, our embassies over there. And then we made all the, you know, the trek all the way to the north uh, to a city called uh, Mosul. A lot of people here in America might uh, recognize the name Mosul. It's actually pronounced Mosul. And, um, and gosh, there are stories in between all of that. Uh, we don't have the time for it today. But we eventually crossed into Turkey. And then we took buses to Iran. Uh, I got robbed at the Iranian border. Uh, and then from Iran, we made it to Western Pakistan. Uh, all you know, then we had to wait a day and a half. I mean, the place is the true Wild West. Mm. It's arid. It's desolate. Uh, we had to wait for a bus to take us. You know, on a, a day and a half journey to the nearest train station, and then you get on these rickety old. Some of these trains go back to the British era, and uh, I mean, bare bones. They're just made out of metal, and. Uh, we had a cavalry charge one day. Uh, these tribesmen tried, you know, forced the train to stop, and so it was interesting. But uh, we eventually made it to uh, the great city of Lahore, that is the city of my heritage, and uh, we were, you know, I think when we we didn't have a home in Pakistan because we never lived there, so we had to go to my uncle's home. Right. And uh, when we got there, I think it, it was when we closed the main gate and actually walked into the home. I could see the expression on my father's face. He goes, okay, now I'm safe. Mm. And he always said, he goes, I really didn't care about myself. I wanted to make sure your sister and your mother were safe at all times. Hmm. I know you said that your aunt didn't even recognize you when oh my you God. walked yeah. in the door, right? Yeah, she she <laughs> she basically said, yes, can I help you? And I said, it's me. We were so dirty. Um, mm. And that night I... Um, my head had to be shaved because we couldn't even get my hair wet. It was so dirty. Mm, gosh, wow. Well, I know you eventually came to America. You went to school in Boston and became a financial advisor. Tell us about how you became a financial advisor. So this really started after we had our first baby, uh, who is now 16. I really wanted to hire a financial planner. Uh, and my wife kept joking that you're never, you're a control freak. You're never going to give this up uh, to somebody else. And I'm like, no, I really just, my whole universe is my new daughter and I want somebody else to do this. And, you know, after having met, uh, you know, several uh, advisors from, you know, across the channels, whether they were wirehouse or otherwise, I just got more and more frustrated that none of these people were actually listening to me. Mm. None of them were actually coming back with solutions to what I was looking for. I mean, I had articulated what my goals were. I am a, you know, I record keeping, probably I have a PhD in it. I'm very organized. Um, and one day, just finally, I just, you know, this gentleman comes into my home 
and and to each his own as an advisor i don't make home visits uh, almost everybody else does in the business and i know that and i don't judge mm-hmm. but i just said to myself like first of all why is he not inviting me to his office why is he sitting at my kitchen table mm. but on top of that he launches into a scripted presentation and i finally had had it i'm a pretty polite guy but i finally had it and i said listen I told you I'm a professor of investments. I know what standard deviation means. You don't need to tell me the definition. Get to the point. I asked you, here is where I am. Here's what I'm trying to get to. Am I on pace for that? If not, what do I need to do? And, and, the, and you know, this gentleman then proceeded to completely ignore my, my outburst. And, I, you know, I guess he figured out that he wasn't getting any business. So he's like, let me try getting some referrals from me. And that just made me even angrier. Oh. And, yeah. uh, and then we basically, you know, my wife said, like, why don't you just do this? And I said, uh, all right, I'm not going to hire an advisor. She goes, no, no, become an advisor. You always tell people I'm going to teach you how to do this. So why don't you go teach people how to do this? Mm. And uh, here we are. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, I know that you early in your career, at least you experienced some racism, discrimination from folks in the in the industry tell us i know that i know that's sort of a whole nother podcast we could do but (laughs) tell us a little bit about you know that that problem in in this industry and some of the experiences you've had there well when when i had finally decided that i was going to do this i had met this uh uh, this lady at a networking event and we had agreed to reconnect uh, Mm -hmm. over coffee and uh, it was between that first and the second meeting that i had you know, arrived at the decision to become a, an advisor. So one of the first things uh, when we uh, met again, I said to her, like, hey, guess what? I, uh, I'm going to become a financial advisor. And the first thing that came out of her mouth was like, oh, God, you really shouldn't do that. And I said, oh, really? Why do you say that? She goes, well, you look like those 9-11 terrorists. Who's going to do business with you? Oh, God. And it's awful. <laughs> What did you, uh, how did you respond to that? Oh, you know, I, I Brushed gave it, it off. I, well, <laughs> I kind of gave it right back at her, made fun of her name. Um, mm. But, um, you know, I, I am open to criticism and I'm open to constructive criticism. I'm not just, well, that's not criticism. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's... You know, this is foolishness and I have a right, right. very thick skin. So most things don't get to me. Uh, if that, if they really do get to me, I make it so that I turn it around and have it as a source of strength for me. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was just going to ask you, you know, you've experienced so much adversity over your life. And for, I mean, for a lot of people who had been through what you had been through, you know, they might even, you know, experience some post-traumatic stress disorder, but you seem to just really thrive and overcome the, those things. How did you do it? How do you continue to have a positive attitude and just be so successful? You know, when I was doing my um, annual physical with my doctor, the nurse comes in to take my blood and, and she's trying to do some chit chat. And she goes, uh, do you know what your blood type is? And I said, always be positive. <laughs> um i i just really feel there is no reason to be negative even if there are things that might compel you to be it's just not it's not productive it's not good for your health Mm -hmm. um i look forward um 
you know, I learn from what's behind me and what has happened, but I don't dwell on it. I just move forward. Yeah. I mean, even in this situation that we're in now with the, the market swings and the coronavirus spread wreaking havoc, you know, people have said to me, you know, let's reframe this situation. You know, we are blessed. We're, you know, we have everything we need. We're in our homes, you know, we can work from home, you know, sort of, I mean, that's um, sounds like a little bit about what your attitude has been. Oh God, I, I, I tell people um, as long as you're vertical and above ground, everything else is a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there are people who have it far worse. I mean, far worse than us. And, and I have, you know, when I first moved to Pakistan, God bless my father. What an amazing man he was. Uh, I, I was enrolled in what is effectively the, the Harvard and Oxford of Pakistan, a, a, an institution that has bred and produced every president, prime minister, chief justice, you can name in that country. And so about a month before I was going to start my classes, my father pulled me aside and he he said, look, very soon you're going to start living in a bubble again. You're going to be surrounded by the elite who are really just one-tenth of one percent of this country. I want to show you your country. And we spent several weeks going up and down the country. I mean, riding on the tops of buses, uh, eating on train stations, getting diarrhea, but really seeing the country. Right. And I saw poverty and I mm -hmm. saw people who had nothing. And, and then I looked at myself and I'm like, none of my problems are really actually problems. Mm -hmm. I just think they are. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of my passions is girls' education, and one of the things I observed was that girls didn't really have as much access to education, and if they had it, it was really more lip service than actual education. And you know, the five years that I spent in Pakistan, I um, you know I, I devoted a lot of effort into you know building awareness, uh, fundraising for girls' schools, especially in rural areas, because you know if if a woman is educated, I think society itself not only prospers, it's just much better off. And um, so, Absolutely. you know, I, I, yeah. I've traveled all over the world. And, you know, when you when you when people here say, oh, my life sucks, I'm like, you have no idea. Mm -hmm. You have no idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask one quick bonus question. How sure. did you feel when Saddam was captured and hanged a few years later? Oh, Good God. Um, so, you know, I have my my thoughts on the, the invasion of Iraq. I, I remember speaking to a group of Marines before the, that invasion even began. Hmm. Uh, look, I have no love for Saddam Hussein. He was an evil man. You know, he, he ruled his country with an iron fist to play hmm. devil's advocate. There, it was also safe, you know, with a, lots of education and health care and all of the uh, all of the above, which they don't have since we invaded. Um, hmm. But, sure. you know, he, he was caught and he was hanged. I believe he he should have been tried and he should have been hung by the Iraqi people. Mm. Uh, he was hung very quickly overnight by his political opponents. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, for humanity's sake and for, you know, what he did to many people. Yeah, he's dead and that's fine. Um, he, I mean, he turned my life upside down. He didn't really hurt me personally. Right. But sure. I feel that, um, you know, that war was flawed and uh, he really should have been tried. And, 
you know, whatever was due to him should have been done by the Iraqi government, not his political rivals. Yeah, and you, I think that's that's what happened to him, really. You think that the U.S. invasion of Iraq was flawed? That's the war you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And people will have very differing opinions on that. I mean, I was at the receiving end of Saddam Hussein's adventures. But, mm. uh, you know, the war really was in response to what happened on 9-11. But, you know, honestly, he had nothing to do with it. Right, right. Well, this was just so fascinating and I could talk, you know, forever on this stuff, but I'd, I'd like to thank you, Cash, for coming on the show and just especially for being so open about this just really hard time, traumatic time in your life. Really, thank you for that. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And if you feel like you have a struggle and you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at Transparency with Diana B at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to Transparency with Diana B. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.